0: The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 945 or 1130 a.m. in Pember Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There are few things worse in life than getting sprayed by a skunk. Fortunately, I myself have never been sprayed by a skunk, but from everything I've heard from friends of mine who have gotten sprayed, when you get sprayed by a skunk, that smell, it just doesn't go away with the shower. I mean, it hangs on you, it follows you, it haunts you. You might as well just burn the clothes that you were wearing at the time. There are few things worse than getting sprayed by a skunk. However, There was a teenager living in Connecticut that Friday morning discovered one of those few things that are worse than getting sprayed by a skunk. As it has been reported in the Miami Herald and other news outlets around the country, this 13-year-old boy woke up on Friday morning to find a skunk in his bed. Now, let me make sure I'm clear about this. When I say skunk in his bed, I'm not saying a skunk in his sleeping bag or in his tent. I'm saying in his room, in his house, in his bed, he woke up and there was a skunk laying next to him. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Now you say, okay, that is an unbelievable situation. I mean, it's one thing to come across a skunk. It's one thing to bump into a skunk. It's one thing to to get sprayed by a skunk. But how do you get into such an intimate arrangement as you wake up with a skunk in your bed? How does that happen? Well, there's actually a very logical explanation for this. What happened was the family took their trash can out to the curb in the morning, There was a hole in the bottom of the trash can. When the trash can was emptied, later a skunk crawled into the trash can. The family, not knowing, brought the trash can back into their house. When night fell, the skunk crept out of the trash can, wanted to find a warm place to sleep, found this teenager's bed and thought that was the best place for him to sleep for the night. And that teenager the next morning woke up to screaming, okay? He was screaming at the top of his lungs. They said the entire house reeked of skunk smell, although the skunk also ran out of the house as fast as it could, um, but left its smell behind. Okay, that's a crazy situation that when you first hear it, you say, how is that even possible? There's actually a logical explanation for why that, that boy and that house now has the skunk smell hanging around it. There's actually a good explanation for that. We're in a series Uh, on forgiveness, and we're talking about how bitterness creeps into our lives, and sometimes we, we find ourselves in a situation where like, okay, I'm not a bitter person, I'm not an angry person, I'm a happy, joyful person, but in this season, it's like this anger and this bitterness, it's like it's got this funk on my life. It's affecting my relationships. It's affecting my emotions. This anger, it's actually like, it's affecting me physically, sleepless nights. It's haunting me. I'm carrying this around and I can't figure out how to get this bitterness off of me. And you might even be saying, look, I'm all the way here. I don't know how to get this off me. And I don't even know how I got here to begin with. Like, how did it get so bad? And when you stop and think, like, okay, there's actually a logical explanation for how it got this bad. See, I look back and I see The wounds that were dealt me from various people or from certain people, wounds that were dealt me over the years, and there's just hurt, and there's pain. You say, how do I deal with this forgiveness? How do I deal with these complicated relationships? Because it's messy. It's complicated. It's complex. These are people still in my life. How do I handle these difficult?" Relationships. And we're looking at a passage in, uh, in the Bible. It's actually a book we call Philemon, and it's actually a letter that a guy named Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon. If you have a Bible or Bible app, if you'd open to the book of Philemon, we're going to read the very end of this letter. <clears throat> we get to the very end of this letter, and we're going to see what Paul has to say as he concludes this letter to Philemon. Let's look at verse 21. Here's what it says. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. So let's talk through this a little bit about this letter. He ends, he's wrapping up the letter. He gives some personal instructions. One of the things he says is, prepare a room for me. I plan to return to you. I'm, I'm praying that I'll be released from prison. I'd love to come visit you, so prepare for my return. The other thing that he says, is, says, confident of your obedience. I know you're going to do even more than I say. So what has Paul asked Philemon to do? Like what's Paul asked this guy to do that Paul is expecting that he will obey? So let's rewind a little bit. Paul and Philemon, they know each other. They're good friends. In fact, when Paul was traveling through the region, he was a missionary. He was sharing the truth about Jesus. He was um, traveling through that, that region. He actually told Philemon about Jesus. Philemon decided to become a Christ follower. He became a Christian through the work of Paul. And so they're good friends. Now Paul is in prison. He's in Rome, in prison. Philemon is on the other side of that that region, he's in modern-day Turkey in an ancient city called Colossae. He's there, and Paul's writing him, them, him this letter. Why, what circumstance happened that led to this letter? While Paul was in Rome, of all coincidences, he runs into a guy that knows Philemon. The guy's name is Onesimus. And he get, Paul starts talking to this guy, Onesimus, when they realize they have this mutual friend. He, t- he says, how do you know him? And he finds out that Onesimus was Philemon's bondservant used to work in Philemon's house. Paul's wondering, okay, how if you're his bondservant, what are you doing in Rome? And he learns that Onesimus has turned his back on Philemon. He's fled and in the process has stolen money from Philemon and now he's in Rome. Paul builds this relationship with Onesimus shares about Jesus with him, Onesimus puts his faith in Jesus, he also becomes a, a Christian, a Christ follower, and so now Onesimus is trying to, to live his life the way God wants him to live, and one day Paul has a tough conversation with Onesimus and says, hey, um, you turned your back on Philemon, you stole from him, you need to go back and make things right. He says, I, you need to go back to, Ones, to Onesimus, you need to go back to Philemon, and I'm going to write this letter to mediate between the two of you. So you can imagine Philemon's reaction when, of all people in the world, Onesimus shows up. The one guy, it's like, man, that's the one guy I never want to see again. That guy shows up in front of Philemon. Of all audacity, he has to show up here, but he's got a letter. And Philemon opens the letter, and it's a letter from Paul. And Paul says some things like this. He says, look, man, I know that you're a loving person. You bless the people around you. You're very loving. And so I'm going to, I I could command you to do this, but I'm going to appeal to you out of your love. I'm appealing to you on behalf of this guy, Onesimus. I, I led him to Jesus, so spiritually he's my child. I love this guy. I'm sending you my very heart, he says. Onesimus is like my very heart. I'm sending him back to you. And he says, I don't, I don't want you to do anything out of compulsion. I want this to be out of the goodness of your, of your heart. I'm asking you that, that when you receive this guy back, maybe the whole reason he was parted from you is that when he gets back, he's no longer your bondservant. You no longer see him as someone that owes you a debt, who wrongs you. When you receive him back, you'll have him forever as a brother. You'll have freed him from all your bitterness. You'll have forgiven him, and you'll have a brother. And he says... And if he owes you anything, if there's anything that, that he any outstanding debts, Paul says, he's kind of like ratcheting up the heat here. Paul says, I'll pay it. Remember, Paul's in prison. He says, I'll pay it for, for Onesimus. And then he says, to say nothing of the fact that you owe me yourself, Philemon, because I led you to Christ and your eternity was spared. I'm not even going to mention, I'm not even going to stand on that. I'm not going to bring that up. I'm just saying, I'll pay the debt if it's that important to you. And then he says, and then he closes it with, I'm confident of your obedience and prepare a place for me because I'm, I'm hoping to return to you. So he says all this and he wraps this up. And, and here's the beautiful thing that we know about the book of Philemon. The beautiful thing is you're like, okay, what happened next? Can you imagine Onesimus standing there? He's like handing the letter. He's like wondering. It's kind of taking him a long time to read the letter. It's a little bit awkward. It's kind of quiet. And then he kind of looks at him like, are you going to punch me or hug me? Like, oh, okay, good. You know, and he kind of gives him a hug. You know, what happened between Philemon and Onesimus? What we know is surely by the fact that we have this letter, that we can read about it about 2,000 years later, is evidence enough that when Philemon got it, he didn't just tear it up and throw it on the ground. He got it, he responded, he let other people read it. They were also impacted about the Onesimuses in their life, the people they need to forgive. They started reading it as a church, they passed it on to other churches, it was circulated and copied, and then we to this day have it. So it's evidence that Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled. So we come all the way to the end, and I want to read you the last Three verses of Philemon, because it sounds like the ordinary way Paul signed and most people signed most of their letters in ancient times. It sounds very ordinary, but there's something profound that God makes sure is included at the very end of this letter that you have to hear. Listen to what it says. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, what's so profound about that? I mean, he just lists a bunch of guys that are there with him doing God's work alongside of him. So he's like, okay, Mark's over here. You know, he's working on this. And and here's this guy. Here's Demas. Like, what's the big deal of, of all these relationships that Paul is writing in saying all the people that are standing there with him? When you understand the stories behind these names, you understand this is a remarkable snapshot of Paul's life and the forgiveness Paul has gone through. We've spent this letter looking at the the relationships between Philemon and Onesimus, but we have this snapshot of some of Paul's relationships that it is fascinating that God made sure was included at the end of this book on forgiveness. And I want to point two of these names out to you because this is an unbelievable moment in Paul's life. The first one is this guy named Mark. He's sometimes called John Mark. Now, let me tell you the background of this. To understand Paul's relationship with Mark, you've got to rewind about 13 years. If you know Paul's background, you know that when Paul be, before Paul was a Christian, he hated Christians. He was a Pharisee, and he actually persecuted Christians. It says he would go house to house saying, any Christians in here? And they would be like, well, I'm a Christian, and drag them off to jail. They were terrified, Christians were terrified of this guy Paul. And he would go around persecuting these Christians, he was hunting them down. He'd actually, overseas, they were executed at times. He was like the staunchest enemy of Christianity. And then he had this powerful encounter with God. He had this moment where he and God, they just had this collision and Paul realized who Jesus was, that Jesus was the Messiah and he put his faith in Jesus and he, became a, he, he pers- began pursuing after Jesus and now he just wanted to be around Christians. But no Christians, they're all afraid of him. And he was trying to go meet with Christians, and he wanted to go back to Jerusalem and meet the famous people who were around Jesus, like Peter and John. And they're like, whoa, that guy? No, don't let him in here. He's a spy. He's just trying to infiltrate our ranks. And there was one guy that was like, I'm going to give this guy a chance. It was this guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas, his name originally is Joseph, but the apostles gave him the name Barnabas. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's because he was just one of those loving guys that believed in everybody and always thought the best of people. And he sees this guy, uh, Paul, and he's like, well, let's give him a chance. And he goes and he talks to Paul. And he, man, this guy really does believe in Jesus. He's not a spy. And he went back to the apostles and said, he's for real, he's legit, you, you can listen to him. And he brings Paul in. And now because of Barnabas, everyone's listening to Paul. And they realize he is a Christian. And they realize he's so fervent that they send Barnabas and Paul out on their own journey as missionaries to start sharing the truth about Jesus. And Barnabas is there with kind of Paul under his wing, kind of mentoring this younger Christian named Paul. And they went on an incredible, adventuresome journey. Now, you've got to understand how close Paul and Barnabas would have been. You know, if you've ever been on a road trip with someone, that on the other end of that road trip, you know them a lot better. Better than you wanted to okay? Uh, A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, his name is Steven, and Steven uh, lives in Central America, and um, I went down to to visit him, and um, he's a really, like, he's an adventuresome kind of guy. I am not an adventuresome kind of guy, okay? Adventure to me is like changing up the pizza toppings on Friday night, okay? We get real crazy, we'll do that, all right? And so, I go and visit my buddy Steven and he says, "Hey, I got this great idea. There's this there's this jungle and I'm already thinking I'm out." <laughs> he says, "There's this jungle and in this jungle there's these waterfalls that you can hike to see. They're uh, supposedly they're breathtaking." Um, we'll, we'll, let's go hike. I'm like, all right, I need to stretch myself a little bit. Is it like in like a national park? Oh yeah, it's in a national park. we'll, we'll be fine. And so we 're driving through Central America. We pull into this small town and um, he pulls over there's a street vendor there, and he pulls over and he's like starting to talk with him in Spanish, and my spanish isn't very good, so I 'm not even really listening. and he 's talking with him and, and, um, and at the end he, he kind of rolls up his window and we start driving, and, and Steven's face is like a little more serious. I'm like, "Well what did he say?" And he said, "Well He said that the waterfall, the entrance to the park, is right up there. And and then he said that there are typically bandits there that rob people at gunpoint. I said, okay, but you're not turning around right now, (laughs) He said, no, I really think it's going to be fine. Let's keep going, okay? I, At this point, I'm speechless, and we're still driving, so I go with it. And we get up there, and, and we get out, and there's nobody there, which is concerning to me because now I believe bandits are everywhere, behind every bush and tree. And all of a sudden, this one guy all by himself emerges, okay? And he's carrying nothing but a machete. I'm dead. This is it. It's the last moment of my life, and he begins talking to my buddy Stephen, and he's offering to be our guide through the jungle, okay? And so Stephen thinks it's a great idea, so he starts following him into the park, and now I realize I can stand out here by myself and die, or follow him and die, so at least I'll have some company. So I follow Stephen in, and we're looking for these these, uh, waterfalls, and there's no path, And I realize at any moment, this guy's leading us to his friends, okay? We're going to have to run for our lives. I'm going to have to trip Stephen so I can escape. (laughs) And I'm not going to be able to find my way out of this jungle. Okay, now, suffice it to say, just to relieve all of you, I did not die in the jungle that day. Okay, I made it. But Stephen and I knew each other a lot better on the other end of that, better than we wanted to know each other. And maybe you've had that kind of experience with someone where on the other end of when you guys have really been in the trenches together, you know them well. Barnabas and Paul, they were partners. They would go into towns where they didn't know anybody and start proclaiming Jesus. And they'd get run out of towns sometimes. they tried try to kill them sometimes. Sometimes it was like just them and a couple people. I mean, they were partners. They were in the trenches together. They did this entire journey. They saw the highs and the lows of people they never thought would put their faith in Jesus in times of their running for their lives. I mean, an incredible adventure. And they finished this journey and they're resting for a season in this city called Antioch. And it was the first of, Paul would do three different journeys like that. It's the end of this first journey. And I want to read to you what happens. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them Here's what happens. They're in Antioch. Man, these guys have been partners. I mean, Barnabas is the guy that stuck up for Paul when no one, when everyone was afraid of him. They've been through trials, ups and downs. They're in Antioch together and, and they decide, okay, let's go back now to all those churches that we were able to get started on these different cities. And Barnabas is like, that's great. Hey, I'm going to go get that guy, John Mark or Mark. And I want to include him in on this. And Paul says, What? You want to include Mark? Halfway through our journey, Mark says, I can't do this anymore, and he he leaves us. He was homesick or he was scared or or he just couldn't hang with it. He couldn't cut it. He he just left us in the middle of it. And and Barnabas is like, no, I mean, you see his heart coming out. Well, I think we shouldn't give him another chance. And it was complicated and let's include him. And there it says there was a sharp disagreement between the two of them. Now that sounds like there was just like a well-worded debate. No, the word sharp disagreement, it's the same word used for wrath. They were exasperated. Luke is very delicate in how he's describing it, so we don't know the details, but it was sharp enough that they separated paths. Because it was complicated. Because here's something else that you may not know about this situation Mark, this young man Mark, was Barnabas' cousin. It was complicated. It was heated. It was emotional. They, it, it, was so, it was so heated, so sharp, that these two that had been walking together, been through all that together, they parted and went separate directions. And Barnabas and Paul never worked together again. Paul wanted nothing to do with Mark. But wait a minute. Fast forward 13 years or so later, and Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's writing a letter to Philemon, and who does he say is standing right there next to him? He says, let me just tell you the people, my fellow workers standing next to me, he says, this guy, and Luke, and Mark. See, here's this beautiful snapshot we have of Paul encouraging Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and here you have Paul, he's no stranger to forgiveness, the difficulty and pain of forgiveness, he's standing there right next to Mark and he's gone through the full cycle of forgiving him, reconciling with him, and now they're being restored and working side by side. Powerful. Whatever happened to Paul and Barnabas? After their separation, they never worked side by side again. That that relationship was never fully uh, restored to where it was. But about five years after that separation, Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians. And in it, he he mentions Barnabas, and he mentions him in this really uh, high esteem, the way he talks about Barnabas. And so we can only get a hint, but at best we can tell, there had been some measure of forgiveness and reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas, but it wasn't quite like it was with Mark, that Paul had fully restored that relationship with Mark. But Mark is not the only name he mentions. There's another name that you need to know about it's a guy named Demas. Did you notice he mentioned a guy named Demas in there too? He says, Mark is here, and Demas is another guy who's here. Now, Demas is a name that's probably uh, short for Demetrius. And Demas is another guy that Paul has an interesting relationship with. But instead of fast uh, going backwards, rewinding, we have to go forward because Paul has restored the relationship with Mark, but his relationship with Demas is just about to fall apart. Now look what it says. The last letter that Paul ever sent is a letter in 2nd. Timothy, and listen to what he says. These are pretty strong words he has to say about Demas. Look what he says. He's telling this to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here's what I want you to see. I hope in and of of this itself, there's something encouraging to you that if Paul can have this much difficulty with relationships, you're going to have difficulty with relationships too. I mean, I want you to see, this is an incredible snapshot at the end of Philemon. You see one relationship that's a whole story, probably one of the most painful experiences in Paul's life, re- regarding Paul, Mark and Barnabas. And you see one is completely restored, and you see one is about to completely fall apart in Demas. And that's the way it is with relationships in our life. We're always on the brink of either needing to repair something or there's one that we're going to need to work hard at. There's always going to be conflict that we've got to learn how to engage that conflict well. And I want to pull a couple things out of this. The first thing I want you to see when it comes to Paul and Barnabas is these two mature godly men, sometimes conflicts arise between strong Christians. And that needs to be put back together. And sometimes there's just differing opinions among strong Christians. And I want you to hear me on this. Being unanimous is not the same as being unified. We have to have unity. We do not have to have unanimity. There, there can be differing opinions, strong differing opinions, and that's not disunity. That might be God stirring up different opinions in different people's minds. That's okay. Unity is dependent on how we handle those differing opinions. Another important thing about Paul and Barnabas, separation is sometimes brought on by God. Separation is not the same as division. Separation is sometimes, is sometimes sparked by God. Why? Because he's calling someone to someone else or stirring something new in someone else and he's sending people into different ministries. In fact, if you follow this story, look what might not have happened if they had stayed together. Mark, if no one had ever brought Mark back under their wing and poured into Mark, one of the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark, would never have been written. Maybe. Maybe. This guy Mark is the one who wrote the the Gospel of Mark, and many scholars believe it was the first gospel written, and many believe actually Matthew and Luke used it as kind of a framework from which they wrote their gospels out of. God powerfully used Mark, but another thing may not have happened if it hadn't been for this, Paul takes a different route because he's separated from Barnabas, and Paul and Silas, in the first town they go to, they meet a guy named Timothy. Timothy who ends up being the guy that Paul passes the baton to, one of the most significant figures in the New Testament. Sometimes God brings about a separation, but that's different from division. God can bring about separation. Division is when through that separation, each side digs in on their own preferences and own self-protection, and they by, by doing that, by turning things selfish, they tear apart God's people. God is, is sometimes behind separation. He's never behind division. God often has a plan for separation. He has to redeem the broken pieces of division. Now, you may look at this and you say, Look, man, this is complicated. I mean, I, I look at my life and I, I say, Man, it, the people in my life I need to forgive, it's not that easy. I, didn't, I never expected myself to be here. Like it, I never have this bitterness clinging to me, but I'm here and it's complicated. How do I know how to go forward with this uh, and, and bring these pieces back together? I mean, I've got to see this person all the time or I have to work with this person. Like, how do I navigate forward when it comes to forgiveness? And there's something that we can learn from this passage that at the end of this passage that I want to drill in as a framework to think about as you move forward. And I want you to think about forgiveness in three different stages. I want you to look at it like this. When it comes to forgiveness, always release, usually reconcile, sometimes restore. If you're a note taker, write this down. Always release them, usually reconcile, and sometimes restore. You see this in each of these three relationships that these names cue us to think about. You think about Demas. Demas, this relationship's about to fall apart and you hear very emotional, heated language in 2 Timothy where he's like, he's deserted me because he's in love with this world. Well, what Paul needs to do, he needs to forgive him and release him. What about Barnabas? Barnabas, there's some measure of forgiveness and and actually they've, they've put the pieces back together. Some kind of reconciliation to some degree, but it was not necessarily ever restored. It couldn't be. But their they head reconciled. But with Mark, they were, he was able to go through all the stages. He was able to forgive him inside, reconcile, and now they're working side by side. They, the relationship's been restored. So maybe for you, think through those complicated relationships. So maybe for you, the step today is there's someone that that I'm frustrated with, I'm bitter. Whenever I see them, I see them through these, these bars, these cage bars of bitterness, and I just need to set them free. I need to release them. I need to say, I will no longer hold these sins against them. They have gone free. I'm letting them free. Why would I do that? Because like we talked about last week, forgiveness is setting the captive free only to realize that captive is me. When you say, I, I've got to release this person, you're actually just releasing your own heart to no longer be in a cage of bitterness. No matter what, we are always called to forgive in the sense of releasing them. We're always called to set them free in our hearts. We're usually called to reconcile. That's where you, in some measure, you sit down with them and you, and you bury the hatchet. You say, look, I, I, if you can, you say something to the effect of, I'm sure that I've, I've hurt you as well, or how have I hurt you, but I need to share some things and get them off, off my heart. And, and you have to sit down and find a way to reconcile. Now, usually you do this. There are some certain times that you don't. Like when it's really hard? No, being hard is not what makes you not reconcile. There are times if there's been some kind of abuse physically, sexually, or even emotionally or verbally, like some kind of manipulation, there could be a situation where sitting down to reconcile, you're bringing yourself into an unsafe environment. Then that's a time when you say, look, I'll forgive them, I'll release them, but I can't reconcile. But any way that you can reconcile, you want to pursue reconciliation. And here's why you want to reconcile. Because most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, when you sit down with that person and they're flesh and blood human and you see their eyes and they're sitting there and you see their herd and their background, most of the time what melts away is you realize that in my own bitterness, I've created this person to be a monster that they're not really, that they aren't really. And when you sit down face to face and you realize, okay, there's room for compassion, there's room for grace. And so if you can, usually you want to pursue some kind of reconciliation where you can make it right. And sometimes you can restore it. By restore means you resume the relationship where it was. And usually if you can go through all these stages, release, reconciliation, and then restoration, the relationship's even better than it was before. You say, how do I know if the relationship can be restored? I want you to think about it like this. There can be no restoration without transformation. If they're not transformed and they're going to keep doing the same things, you might be able to release them and even reconcile, but the relationship's not going to pick up where it, went, where it was before. There's got to be transformation. There's got to be trust rebuilt. Maybe the transformation that needs to happen is in your own heart when you realize they're not a monster They just need some grace. Maybe that's the transformation, but if they're still going to continue to do the same things, restoration may not be possible. And so in the meantime, here's what you have to do. You have to set up boundaries. You can release them. You can even reconcile with them, but you have to set up boundaries where I'm not going to continually be hurt by this person. You say, how do I know what boundaries to set? You know, if, there, if it's a complicated situation, it may be a trained, gifted Christian therapist sits down and helps you figure out what those boundaries are. But here's what I will tell you. Beware, because when you set those boundaries up, that person may accuse you of having not forgiven them. And that's not true. Because there's three different aspects of forgiveness Forgiveness is releasing them in your heart. Everyone ha- we all have to do that if we're following Christ. It's reconciling. We do absolutely try to do if we can. But restoration can't always happen. And if you set those boundaries, you know before the Lord, I'm working on forgiveness in my heart. But in the meantime, until there's transformation and trust rebuilt, I'm going to set up these boundaries. And by the way, trust can't be demanded. It has to be earned. And if you're the one that has been the person who's broken trust, it's on you to earn it back, and to be patient with them as they're learning to trust you again. Let me ask you today, what step, what stage of forgiveness does God need you to take that next step? Is there someone that he's knocking on your heart saying, you need to let this person free because you need to set your heart free? Draw the line today. Say, I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to try and dwell in that. Maybe you say that, no, for me, I I need to reconcile. And today you need to reach out, or this week sometime you need to reach out to the person and say, hey, we need to get coffee because we need to talk through some things. I know there's been hurt that's gone both ways. I I need to hear how I've hurt you and I need to share with how I've been hurt. Maybe you need to reach out and reconcile this week. But maybe for you, maybe there's someone you've, you've released and you've reconciled with and maybe now you need to move towards restoring and try and rebuild that trust and work to rebuild that trust. Or maybe you need to say, you know what? I need to set up boundaries. What's the step that God's nudging you to make today? Corey ten Boom lived in Germany at the time of World War II. And as she saw the oppression of the Jewish people, she and her family tried to protect the Jewish people. And when they were found out, they were arrested and sent to concentration camps along with the Jewish people that were in Germany at that time, and they suffered terribly in those concentration camps. In fact, Corrie Ten Boom, she watched her sister waste away and die in a concentration camp. And eventually she she survived and she was freed, and several decades later she was traveling around the world sharing her experiences, and she was teaching on forgiveness. And she was in Europe, and this was decades after the war. And after one of the times that she shared, a man came up to her and she said, the moment my eyes lay, laid on his face, I saw his face, I knew exactly who he was. And when he opened his mouth and he uttered words, I knew exactly this was one of the most, the cruelest Nazi guards in the concentration camp that I suffered in. I'll never forget his face. And the man approached her and he said, Miss Ten Boom, I don't know if you remember me. But over the last many years, I learned who Jesus was. And I've found forgiveness for my terrible crimes. And I've realized that Jesus has forgiven me. And I've prayed for the opportunity to ask one of my victims. For forgiveness, will you forgive me? And he extends his hand. And Corey Ten Boom, if you hear her tell the story, she would, She says there was nothing inside of me that could forgive this man. I look at his face and all I can see is the face of my dying sister. She's wasting away. How could I possibly forgive this monster? And she says, Somewhere deep down inside there was a voice that reminded me of how much Jesus, my Savior, had forgiven me. And she said, there was nothing inside of me that could forgive him until the power of Jesus started filling and surging through my body and Jesus gave me the power to forgive this man. Church, do you know who is writing you this letter? This isn't a letter from Paul to Philemon. Ultimately, God said, I want to hold this in in Scripture for millennia because I want to open it up in churches throughout history and hear this. This is a message from God to you. This is a message from Jesus to you. Can you hear this letter as a letter from Jesus to you? Can I just read through this letter? And can you hear it in your heart as if it's from Jesus speaking directly to your situation? Here's what the letter says. This is for you. Grace to you and peace from God my Father and from me, your Savior Jesus. I have received much joy from your love that you show to the people all around you. Many are refreshed by your love and it brings joy to me. Accordingly, though I could command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I'd rather appeal to you. I, Jesus, Who was once a prisoner for you? I'm appealing to you on account of someone, that one who has hurt you so deeply. I'm making an appeal for them. They are my child. I'm bringing that person before you, bringing my very heart. I do not want your goodness towards them to be under compulsion, but of your own accord. This is why they have been parted from you for a while, that you can have them back forever, no longer in the bondage of your bitterness, but set free. So if you consider me your Lord, receive them as you would receive me. And however they have wronged you or whatever they owe you, charge that to my account. I, Jesus, write this with my own hand, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own soul. Confidence of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare for me, because through your prayers I intend to return to you soon. All those who are here at my side, send their greetings. May my grace be with your spirit. Christian, do you know who's sending you this letter? It's someone who's no stranger to forgiveness. Do you know who's sending you this letter? Christian, it's your Jesus. It's your King. It's your Savior. It's the one who plucked you out of the clutches of hell itself. It's the one who is the treasure of the universe and he was traded for traitors like us. He's the one that spoke not a word before his accusers and was nailed to a cross and the blood dripped down to the ground and by his blood our entire future was rearranged. Do you know who this is that's saying, forgive today? It's the one who is Jesus. He brings light into the darkness and he's saying, Christian, you are a person of the light. Why are you letting this darkness cling to you any longer? He's calling you out. He's saying, I have purchased your freedom. Now live like you're free and let your heart go. Do you know who this Jesus is? This Jesus whose name means God is salvation. Could there be another being who is more worthy of that name than Jesus? The name that is above every name. This same Jesus at the mere utterance of his name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Can we now resist Jesus as he's calling you to himself? Saying, walk in my footsteps. It's time to forgive and be free. He's holding this person before you and he's saying, it's your move. Follow after me. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954 432 0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.